Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, how was your week? My week wasn't bad. Yeah, not bad at all, actually. I did push myself a couple of days because I went to a big wedding. You know, after two days of kind of just being normal, Noreen, I had a mini crash in the afternoon. I kind of felt really breathless and had to have a nap and then had to take my meds so I could carry on for the next four days of festivities. And how how did you feel with the actually being around people? Because I think one of the hardest things that I find is that being with people, other people's energy is very, very draining. Did you find that? No, I, I actually really enjoyed it because I haven't been around people for so long that instead of feeling like it was a drain I felt like it was a bit of a boost good so you kind of thrived on it yeah it felt nice to talk to people and to see people I hadn't seen in a long time and to reconnect but everybody now has covid so Mm, that's not great no but I I know what you mean it's kind of life-affirming when you actually eventually get to be with other people and spend time with other people yes and I tell you what one thing though because you don't physically look ill apart from the for me I have these really deep dark circles under my eyes that I can't get rid of people don't think you're sick I know that so they're like oh you look great you look amazing and I'm like yeah but you know yes I mean what do you say like I don't want to start start talking about you know actually my heart's racing right now and I'm gonna have to sit down or that music's making me dizzy so I'm trying to hold on to the table but you because you don't physically look ill people don't understand people dismiss it I know exactly that. But you look great. Yeah, I still feel rubbish. (laughs) Yeah. It's really difficult to explain to people that you don't feel like yourself, that you know now that you have limitations that you've never had before and that you can't just push through them. And they're not going to spontaneously... I've come to the conclusion that they're not spontaneously going to go away. Yeah, I think you're right. So that was my week. So it was good and bad. Good that I, you know, got out there and saw family and friends and bad that I realised that I can't just do many days of pushing myself. And bad that I'm hearing so many people now who attended the wedding have got COVID. Yeah, not positive at all. So how was your week? Uh, My week was another fairly rubbish week. I have these good days where I feel feel okay. I think I've had one of them this week. <laughs> but I, I still don't see a pattern of... Uh, and I had my long COVID clinic appointment this week. They were quite keen to push upon me that I always crash because I overdo it on the good days. Then they were also quite keen to put on me that I'm not living my life properly because... I'm concerned about crashes. I think I have a right to be concerned about crashes. Anyway, I don't think that they're going to necessarily fix me, but I think it it was a reasonable experience. I have to say that I think I'm lucky. I think I've got a good team at St. Mary's Paddington and, and it is an MDT and I saw four different people and I saw a consultant and no, they 
really don't have any answers and we are still treating people symptomatically. But I do think that from the perspective of us being involved in any potential trials and uh, things moving forwards, I think that being part of it could potentially be a positive thing. That's that's great news. I also had my long COVID clinic appointment uh, and actually had the person check on the computer when the request came through and it was August of last year. So more than half a year later. And I live in South London and so my services are not the same as yours. It wasn't an MDT unit. It was just a small COVID recovery unit with one respiratory physio who asked me loads of questions. There was no consultant, no doctor. I was asked if I wanted to join a fatigue kind of group. I think we sit around in a circle and talk about how tired we are, which is what we, yeah. which is what you and I do. <laughs> I know. So I, I declined that. You also don't have fatigue, so of all the things that they I could know. have picked. <laughs> and then she took my pulse ox and said it was a hundred percent, and said that was a sign that I had a breathing problem, which I don't really understand and gave me some breathing exercises and then said she couldn't really help me because I obviously have a lot of medical issues and would then refer me to a consultant. Is long COVID not a medical issue? Well, that's the thing. This unit's not set up as a medical. I said your unit's really set up as a post-hospitalization rehab centre and this is not what long COVID is. And she understood all of that. And the irony was that she said she was interested in our podcast and was going to use it as a tool to help her with her job. <laughs> which is flattering and frightening at the same time <laughs> yes because we have no medical training no we just have long COVID training yeah she did ask me if I had medical training <laughs> I, got, I got asked if I had medical training as well <laughs> but that just goes to show like and I think that's one thing that we've said all the time is that we seem to just because of what we've read and the people that we've spoken to, we've kind of furnished ourselves with this knowledge that we now have a greater knowledge than than the GP, certainly. This is why we share it. Yeah. But look, it's a step forward that we had these appointments, that we can talk about these appointments. And let's hear from people what your experiences are. Yeah, I'm jealous that you had a proper unit, like a MDT team. So I think we, we represent the country where you got the gold standard and I got the bog standard. <laughs> but look, let's make no bones about it that even the consultant, the gold standard, even the consultant is saying we can't really treat long COVID. We can only treat symptomatically. Yeah. But this week's guest, we had a fascinating chat with Dr. Sarah Glynn. Wife of Dr. Paul Glynn. Who we spoke to in episode three. She's a GP and menopause specialist. And our conversation around long COVID and female hormones suggests that this might be an area that some of us, women, we might be able to treat some of our long COVID symptoms symptomatically with the use of HRT. What symptoms from uh, long COVID do you think are down to the hormones or the addition of the perimenopause? So I think it's obviously complicated. I'm obviously going to say it's complicated because long COVID is this umbrella term and it's grouping together, lumping together patients with very different presentations and underlying etiologies and pathogenesis and 
there's the question of, I guess, people who've been in hospital. So if you've been in intensive care and you've had kidney failure and heart failure and lung failure, it's not surprising that you're not going to be feeling back to normal three months later. Uh, and whether that's just to do with the fact you've been seriously ill and you've got a post-intensive care syndrome, which is very commonly recognised, or whether you've got you know, what we are starting to think about is long COVID and effects of the virus that are driving immune dysregulation and inflammation and long COVID. You know, there's probably an overlap. Perhaps they've got both, but that's a very different category. And then you've got patients in the community and there are issues like mast cell activation and microclots. There's the question uh, of autoantibodies. Um, there's hormones and I think obviously most patients are going to probably have one or two or three different types of things going on that overlap. I think with perimenopausal women, I'm seeing sort of two groups of patients, really. So the first group, I would say, are women that have been infected with COVID, that contracted COVID, um, and they've had whatever symptoms they've had in their initial infection. Uh, and as part of that, the COVID has also infected their ovaries and caused hormone imbalance. And it might be that by the time I see them in my clinic, six months, nine months, 12 months, two years now down the line, it might be that what they're left with is the menopausal symptoms because perhaps they got better from the ENT symptoms, the lung symptoms, the cough, other issues that were there at the start have got better. But because they were perimenopausal, whether or not they'd noticed that they were perimenopausal before and their ovaries are coming towards the end of their reproductive life, then for, for whatever reason, their ovaries haven't recovered from that insult. And so they are fairly straightforward to treat because actually many of their symptoms are probably just menopausal by the time I see them. I suspect that their symptoms have come on more suddenly. I suspect that they've had a more dramatic menopause and they might otherwise have had if they you know, transitioned naturally through the menopause. But either way, that's where we are. And actually, other symptoms have got better, but we are left with many menopausal symptoms. And what are those symptoms? Because I think that, that this conversation about menopause is also something that we we need to bring out into the fore. Long COVID is bringing out conversations about all sorts of post-viral illness. Also, So I think it's really important to, to bring these things out into the public discussion. What are the symptoms of the menopause? Okay. So whether you've had COVID or not, symptoms of the menopause are obviously changing your periods, but in the perimenopausal stage, which is the five to 10 years before your periods stop, that might not be one of the first things that, that happens. And so women might still be having regular periods. Um, things like hot flushes and night sweats, about three quarters of women get hot flushes and night sweats, brain fog, uh, sleep changes, anxiety, low mood, panic attacks, tenseness, stressed feelings, um, and then things like palpitations, headaches, joint pains, loss of libido, vaginal dryness, soreness, urinary tract infections. Essentially, it can cause many, many different symptoms. And pretty much all of those are also symptoms exactly. of long COVID. Of long COVID, <laughs> exactly. And that brings me to my other group of patients where, um, you know, perhaps as part of their long COVID syndrome, they've got estrogen deficiency that's been triggered by the virus. Um, but they may also have other symptoms that have been caused by the virus. So, you know, as we know, if the virus is driving some sort of immune dysregulation and inflammation, then that can cause generalized symptoms like fatigue and fever and muscle aches and pains um, and organ-specific symptoms. So again, migraines, headaches, brain fog, uh, palpitations, chest pain, joint pains. And when you're faced with a patient like that, it can be very difficult to decide, well, how much of this is the menopause or possibly due to estrogen deficiency? 
and how much of it is due to long COVID and a direct effect of the virus. And there's no diagnostic test for either. So we don't do blood tests in women in the perimenopause because we know that hormone levels fluctuate all over the place. And sometimes you're lucky and you measure the hormones and the estradiol is low and it confirms what you were thinking all along. But other times the hormone, quite often, in fact, the hormones come back normal. And then actually a blood test is not helpful at all because it could be falsely reassuring. And the number of patients I've seen that say, but I can't be perimenopausal because my estrogen is normal and my doctor told me, you know, I'm still having periods, my hormones are normal. I'm not menopausal. And I'm saying, but look, you've got hot flushes, night sweats, your moods change, you can't sleep. You've started getting headaches you never had before. It's obvious that you are perimenopausal. You're the right age for it. And in the same way as if you had an 11-year-old girl who started her periods, you wouldn't send her for a blood test to see if she was going through puberty. You don't need to do to send a, a sort of 47-year-old lady with brain fog and night sweats for a blood test. She's, you know, she's, she's menopausal, regardless of what the blood test would show. So actually, in this context, when you've got someone with these sort of widespread symptoms that could be menopause um, uh, or they could be long COVID and it could be long COVID causing the menopause. HRT is a really useful tool diagnostically because if some of the symptoms or all of the symptoms are due to estrogen deficiency, then as I've already said, giving women HRT will very quickly treat those symptoms and you'll very quickly be able to work out, well, okay, that's got better, that's got better, that's got better. So I'm confident that that was caused by hormone imbalance. But actually, you're still complaining of chest pain or you're still getting migraines and that hasn't responded to the HRT. So actually, now we can really focus in on those symptoms. I've made you feel better by getting rid of the other symptoms. But if there are any symptoms left, now we can focus on those and they may require an alternate management strategy, depending on what the symptoms are. So it's not just useful therapeutically to treat estrogen deficiency. It can also be a very useful diagnostic tool, given that we don't have one at the moment. And that HRT treatment that you are offering to the people that are potentially driven towards perimenopause by long COVID, is it the same protocol that you would use in any perimenopausal woman? Or is there a difference in the in the amounts or the way in which you're administering for long COVID? Um, so broadly speaking, it's the same. Uh, we start with estrogen. And if you've got a wound, you have to take progesterone as well to protect your endometrial lining. Normally, I would start ladies on either a patch or gel. It's very easy to prescribe. I would explain to them how to do that. I'd start them on progesterone as well. Um, if you're still having your periods, you take it cyclically, which means you only use the progesterone for two weeks out of every four. Whereas once you're postmenopausal or haven't had any periods for a year, you just take it on a daily basis. But that's the same as I would do for everybody. Increasingly, we are also prescribing testosterone now to women who are menopausal. So interestingly, testosterone is also our dominant hormone. It's not just the male hormone. We make three to four times as much testosterone as we do estrogen. And after the menopause, half of our testosterone is made in the ovaries, half is made in the adrenal glands. And testosterone is another hormone that declines after the menopause. Broadly speaking, testosterone is particularly good for symptoms such as brain fog, mood changes, uh, difficulty concentrating, cognitive issues, muscle problems, joint pains, loss of libido. Obviously. I think I like some of that. I know. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> hormone. We are using it more and more. And I guess the only difference 
with long COVID, uh, but I'm and this is literally, I, mean, I spoke to Louise Newsom about this recently, actually, because she's been really pushing it. We are finding that when we are measuring women's testosterone levels, so as I said, normally we don't measure hormone levels in terms of estrogen and progesterone, we don't need to measure them. But if we're thinking about testosterone, if we want to replace testosterone, then we have to be a little bit more careful because we want to get it into the female range. We don't obviously want to give women too much testosterone. Um, and we are finding that when we are checking women's hormone levels with long COVID, they are all coming back with really low testosterone. Yeah, I have really low testosterone. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and we are being much more proactive, I would say, in the long COVID perimenopausal cohort than I am generally in starting testosterone. And normally I wouldn't have that conversation in my first consultation because when I'm doing a menopause consultation, I'm throwing a lot of information at someone and we're talking about the risks and benefits of HRT and how to take HRT and what type of HRT they prefer and try to talk about testosterone as well. Um, you know, it can be quite complicated. But I have to say at the very least in my long COVID patients, I'm flagging it up and I'm being very proactive about starting it early if I find that it's low. I've had some patients that I've started on estrogen and progesterone um, and they've maybe improved a little bit, but not much. And then actually you start them on the testosterone and it's, you know, dramatic. So that's the only difference. But apart from that, you know, the way I would describe HRT generally is the same regardless. You talk about doing this anecdotally and in women of perimenopausal age. Have there been studies or clinical trials done into the use of HRT for the treatment of long COVID? So no, there have not been any clinical trials. It's very frustrating because we know about two thirds of patients with long COVID are women. And we know about two thirds of those are in this perimenopausal age bracket and potentially would benefit from HRT. I know that I think it's improving, but I, I certainly last year I spoke to someone in the, who'd been seen in the long COVID clinic and she hadn't been asked about her hormones. I had a patient that had been seen by GP specialist. She was in a long COVID clinic for 18 months. She had nine blood tests. No one asked her about her hormones. No one checked her hormone levels. And she was quite upset because when I started her on HRT, she's someone that responded very well. Not everybody will respond well to HRT. It's not a cure. It's not a magic bullet for everybody. But for many patients, and for this patient in particular, had dramatically she said within a week or so she just felt like a cloud lifting she just felt transformed and she was quite upset that she'd been feeling so unwell for 18 months and no one had even asked her about her hormones because she could have been started on HRT a year ago and she could have been better you know a long time ago um, and I know that, uh, for example, NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, they, if you, if you look at their guideline about long COVID, uh, they talk about all the different symptoms that you can get in long COVID and how it can affect the brain and the heart and the lungs and the gut and so on and so forth. Uh, they haven't listed menstrual changes as one of their symptoms of long COVID. When we spoke before, you said that you were aware that one third of people had noticed menstrual changes. 3% of women with long COVID had early onset menopause. That's correct. And that was yeah. sort of six months ago that that yeah. data was already coming through and, it, and it's Absolutely. still not been updated. No, and it, I don't understand why. So when I was trying to learn about long COVID, if you, there have been some big studies in the Lancet and Nature and the BMJ, um, and most of them haven't asked women about their periods. So they'll characterize all these different symptoms and come up with all these different symptom profiles and make these amazing pictograms that look great with all these symptoms sort of listed around the central figure. And they just don't ask women about their periods. And the only, I haven't looked at this for a couple of months, so I'm not sure if this has been updated, but I just remember certainly towards the end of last year, the only 
only large study that had asked women about their periods was one that was published in The Lancet by Hannah Davies and her colleagues. And they distributed just a survey amongst their social media and COVID support groups. And they did ask women about their periods. And in that study, I think there were about 2,000 respondents. Um, about 36% of women have reported a change in their periods. Either they become more irregular or they become heavier or they become more painful. And as you said, 3% of women, their periods have stopped altogether. And that number, I know Louise Newson has done surveys using her balance app and, and in the women that have responded to her surveys with long COVID, up to about 70% of them have reported uh, changes in their periods after long COVID. And the interesting thing is that not only have 70 odd percent of women reported changes in their periods, but it's also very common for long COVID symptoms to be worse premenstrually, which is when your estrogen levels are at the lowest. But apart from that, there's really not much data out there regarding what COVID is doing to our periods. And as I said, NICE have not included it in their list of symptoms. So even and if you're a doctor who's interested in learning more about COVID, if you looked at the NICE guideline, it wouldn't make you think about periods or the effect that it's having on women's hormones. And I know that £20 million, I think, have been invested into non-COVID research in this country. And they're looking at things like repurposed uh, treatments, like things like colchicine, aspirin, I think. And none of them, none of them are looking at HRT. And there are no clinical trials that are looking at HRT. And I think it's just really disappointing. And I think there's definitely an attitude out there along the lines of, well, it, it, HRT won't affect men. So there's no interest in, in exploring it, which is hugely frustrating because I think at least one third, maybe up to one half of women with long COVID potentially might benefit from HRT, which interestingly is roughly around the same number as the number of men with long COVID. And I'm fairly sure that if I turned around and said, look, I've got a treatment, it's only going to work for men, but it's going to be really good. And it's got long term health benefits and it's really safe and it's really easy to prescribe and it doesn't cost very much. <laughs> They'd be biting my hand off. So I, I don't understand why there's not more interest in exploring HRT in non-COVID. The menopause is a long neglected uh, field of study anyway in medicine. But you, you were telling us the story about the lady who came to see you and who hadn't uh, had was asked about her menstrual cycle and her hormones. And then you gave her HRT and she recovered. Could it have just been that she was menopausal? This is the thing. I think absolutely. Is it an epiphenomenon? Yeah, there's certainly an element of misdiagnosis, but I think it's you have to be very careful how you frame it when you're talking to women. Because I think what's happened in ladies like her is that, yes, by the time I saw her, her symptoms were attributable to the menopause. But I think it was caused by long COVID. So obviously, women will go through the menopause at some point. But normally, they would transition through the menopause slowly and gradually, and these symptoms would evolve more gradually. And I think what's happening in, in COVID is it's happening very suddenly. So women are getting COVID and it's infecting their ovaries and their estrogen levels are crashing. And it's a bit like having your ovaries taken out because you're having a treatment for breast cancer or something. Uh, a surgical menopause is, is much more severe than a natural menopause. And I just think these women are being flawed because out of nowhere, their ovaries have crashed and their estrogen levels have dropped. Uh, and it's been very dramatic. And they've gone from feeling relatively well, possibly with no menopause symptoms at all, to literally within the space of a few weeks feeling awful, feeling really, really terrible. Um, and so I think there is definitely a group of women that, as I say, by the time I see them, are menopausal, but it's been misdiagnosed as long COVID because that's where it all started. And I think if you just sort of turn around to women and say, well, look, I don't think it's long COVID, it's probably just the menopause. I think it's really easy to make women feel dismissed and as though they're being fobbed off. And that's not what we're saying at all. I'm absolutely acknowledging the fact that COVID was the trigger and COVID has made everything worse. But actually, I mean, in a way, you're 
you're lucky if you fall into that category because if you're someone that actually has now menopausal, I've I've got an amazing treatment for that. You know, I, HRT is going to yeah. really really help you. Yeah, that was kind of my point. So there are women at home who think they're going through the menopause, and actually it was caused by long COVID. So you can go and get some treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, work, it works you know, both ways, you know. Yeah, yeah, you're lucky. So, you know, whereas women who've got multiple things going on, and I see a lot of those as well, and women who've got probable mast cell activation or histamine-mediated symptoms and organ-specific signs and symptoms and probable estrogen deficiency as well, they're harder to treat. But even if I can only treat some of their symptoms, then that's helpful. And I don't know, I'm speculating, but I wonder, because we know that estrogen is such a great hormone and it's got these sort of immunomodulatory and anti-inflammatory effects, I don't know, but I wonder, even if your problem is, for example myocarditis and you've got inflammation of your heart then obviously hrt is not going to help that directly because you need to have treatment for your myocarditis but i do wonder if estrogen might boost your immune system and just help your myocarditis symptoms and and optimize your response to treatment that you're having for myocarditis why wouldn't you put yourself in the best possible position As, as i say you know it's another barrier to recovery and if you're estrogen deficient then they can throw as much culture seed and aspirin or whatever at you as they like it's not ultimately going to necessarily help as much as you would like it to are there any studies or is there any data from previously looking at a connection between estrogen and autoimmune diseases because obviously women are much more prone to autoimmune diseases is there a connection between those two yeah so as you say women are more likely to get autoimmune diseases and we know that uh, lots of patients with long covid seem to be getting autoantibodies and it's quite possible i mean nobody knows at the moment what's going on exactly we think it's probably something to do with the t-cells and i've read research that's focused on the th2 cells which are the ones linked with allergy and that's quite interesting because we know that people with allergy are more likely to get long covid Um, and interestingly i I was reading a study recently that said women that took hrt noticed an improvement in their hay fever symptoms which is not what the study was set out to, to, to measure and that there's definitely a link in that respect. And, and the allergy link, the Th2 cells link, the cells that are linked to allergy are cells like mast cells, uh, which release histamine. And so if it was a Th2 issue, that might link nicely with things like eosinophils and microclots and possibly mast cells. Um, but then equally, it's the Th1 cells actually that are involved in autoantibodies. And so what's going on in different patients at different times, who knows? I, I, I don't know yet. I don't think anybody knows yet. Fair enough. One thing that is interesting is the link with the microbiome. And I, I was very interested because I listened to your podcast recently that you did with Professor Thomas about the microbiome in non-COVID. And I've been doing a lot of reading about that. And, you know, Paul also mentioned that one of the barriers to recovery is your gut health. And I, you know, we, we are starting evidence research is starting to to accumulate that uh, COVID is affecting the microbiome of people. And we know, for example, that I think Tim Spector, the Zoe, the COVID symptom study, they found that uh, people who were taking probiotics had a 14% lower risk of getting COVID. And if you get COVID, there was a study that showed that if you were treated with probiotics in hospital, you were eight times less likely to end up on intensive care with a severe infection. And there have been studies that have shown that long COVID is associated with dysbiosis, which is uh, an imbalance in the microbes in the gut that may partially be driving this long COVID. Um, And then Professor Thomas has talked on his podcast recently uh, that when he gave the probiotic and the prebiotic to patients with long COVID, actually it reduced their symptom burden. And it was both GI 
gut symptoms as well as non-gut symptoms. And that's interesting because the menopause is also associated with changes in the microbiome. And estrogen is one of the factors that affects your microbiome. So, for example, there was a study published literally uh, about a week ago in Menopause Journal that showed it's a very small study. It was only about 35 women who were having endoscopies and they took duodenal aspirate. So they took uh, samples of the fluid from their duodenum, which is the first part of the small bowel. And they compared the microbiome of women who were premenopausal versus postmenopausal. And the postmenopausal group were divided into those that were taking HRT and those that weren't. And it was very interesting because actually the premenopausal ladies and the postmenopausal ladies who were taking HRT had similar microbiomes, whereas the postmenopausal ladies who were not taking HRT had a different microbiome that was less diverse with more of the uh, unfriendly bacteria and fewer of the good bacteria, if you like. And so this is suggesting that being menopausal in itself is something that affects your microbiome. And again, you know, Professor Bob Thomas um, uh, did the POMI-T study that I think he also mentioned recently, looking at, I think they gave a group of Japanese women who'd been treated with breast cancer. So they had menopausal symptoms and joint aches and pains, which could have been a, a menopausal issue, or it could have been due to the aches and pains are very common in women who are even treatment for um, breast cancer. Again, it was quite small, but he gave a group of women uh, this pommy tea supplement that I think has dried pomegranate and green tea and broccoli and something else in it. Turmeric. Yeah, turmeric. Um, and and demonstrated that the women that took the pommy tea, they all had significant reductions in the hot flushes and their mood improved and their joint pains improved. And it just, it's really interesting because I think uh, dysbiosis uh, is linked to long COVID. Um, and not only is COVID causing dysbiosis, but then the dysbiosis potentially is driving immune dysregulation and, and contributing to the sort of factors downstream that are causing long COVID. And menopause is also a cause of dysbiosis. And we know that estrogen is metabolized by gut microbes. It's called the estrobolome, which are the microbes that specifically metabolize estrogen uh, and promote higher estrogen levels. And there's a bi-directional relationship. So the microbiome affects your estrogen in a good way, usually, if you've got a healthy microbiome, and then your estrogen will affect your microbiome. And so how this is all linking in at the moment, I don't know. But I think gut health is really, really important because having a, a good, diverse microbiome is good for menopausal symptoms. And it's also good for long COVID. And I know in some of the studies that I was looking at, it was the patients with worse dysbiosis at baselines, which in the studies were usually male patients, actually, who were older and sedentary and maybe hospitalized. Those were the patients that benefited the most from prebiotic and probiotic and supplements and dietary modification. And so again, pure speculation, but I just wonder if these perimenopausal women are getting a double whammy um, of COVID that's affecting their microbiome and then COVID that's affecting their ovaries and then the drop in estrogen is affecting their microbiome and that's affecting their estrogen. You know, I just wonder if... Just all of these feedback loops essentially, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's this sort of huge interaction going on that I think we just don't know very much about at the moment. Um, but I think it's well worth thinking about your diet and, and probiotics and prebiotics. Well, you mentioned um, menstrual changes. Um, a lot of women are getting much heavier periods. And so then that's a knock-on effect onto their iron levels. So, mm -hmm. for example, Emily and I, our iron levels are in basically on, on the floor. And our blood loss is massive, massive. Yeah. Really? Each month. Oh, really? That's interesting. And also my daughter's periods are really heavy and she's only just started getting them. 
which is unusual. Has she had COVID? Yeah. She had COVID as well. With respect to COVID, periods can do pretty much anything. They can get heavier, they can get lighter, they can get more frequent, less frequent, irregular, more painful, or they can stop altogether. Everything's being reported. And obviously, if you're getting heavy periods and you become iron deficient, then clearly that's not going to help. Equally, vitamin D is a vitamin that's uh, quite important with estrogen metabolism. So again, it sort of comes back to diet thinking about your nutrients, your vitamins, your minerals, your gut health, I think is all a part of taking a sort of holistic approach to managing long COVID patients because it's often not straightforward. Can you treat people who are not perimenopausal, not in that age bracket with replacement estrogen? So you can. I mean, obviously, if we're talking about symptoms due to estrogen deficiency, then HRT is only going to help those who are deficient in estrogen. And if you're a young woman or if you're a man or if you're a child, you know, if you've got normal estrogen levels, then HRT isn't going to help. The problem is, as I've said, you often don't know uh, because yeah. in the perimenopausal age bracket, there's no diagnostic test. Uh, and also bearing in mind that uh, premature menopause is very common. Early menopause is before the age of 45, premature menopause is before the age of 40. And premature menopause affects about one in 100 women, so it's, it's not uncommon. But the great thing about HRT is that if you're not sure, you've really got nothing to lose by trying it. So if you're faced with a female patient who's maybe 32 or 35 or 40, who you wouldn't normally be thinking about HRT in, you've got nothing to lose by trying it. And in fact, if it's something that's beneficial, then you've done that patient a massive favor because uh, women with premature ovarian failure are the most likely to benefit in terms of all the long-term benefits of HRT, their cardiovascular health, their brain health, their bone health. So it, it, it could be quite difficult to diagnose women with premature menopause because hormone levels are not always reliable. But clinically, you know, menopause is a clinical diagnosis. And if someone has symptoms that are consistent with menopause or possible menopause, then you've got nothing to lose by trying HRT. And worst case scenario, if it doesn't help, you can stop it six months down the line. It doesn't matter. You haven't lost anything. So that was going to be my next question. Can you start and then stop? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah. I mean, there, there are very few reasons why you you can't take HRT. If you think about it, um, I mean, women are, the thing they probably worry about most is breast cancer. Uh, but we know we know now that HRT does not cause breast cancer. If you're under the age of 51 and you're prescribed HRT, it does not increase your risk of breast cancer. Estrogen-only HRT does not increase your risk of breast cancer. If you are over the age of 51 and you are prescribed the type of progesterone that we normally give these days, which is body-identical progesterone or eutrogestan, it does not increase your risk of breast cancer for at least six years. Thereafter, there's a very small increased risk in breast cancer, which is less than one additional case per thousand women who take HRT per year. It's a smaller risk than being overweight, much smaller risk uh, of breast cancer compared to being overweight. It's a smaller risk compared to drinking alcohol. It's a small risk. And when you balance it, it is there, it does exist. Uh, but when you balance that risk, whenever you're thinking about the um, about, about HRT, often people talk about the risk and they never talk about the benefits. And obviously, the most obvious benefit is symptom relief, because if you've got symptoms caused by estrogen deficiency, then as you, you know, give the estrogen back, those symptoms will improve. But in terms of your long term health benefits, so the most common cause of death in this country is Alzheimer's disease, dementia. And there was a study published last year that showed that women who took HRT for over a year had a reduced risk of uh, Alzheimer's disease by 58%. And if they took wow. HRT for more than six years, it reduced their risk of Alzheimer's 79%, which I think is incredible. That is incredible. 
The second most common cause of death in this country is cardiovascular disease. Kills seven times as many women as breast cancer. And HRT halves your risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, about the same number of women die each year for, after an osteoporotic hip fracture as die from breast cancer. But HRT reduces your risk of osteoporosis by 30 to 50%. It reduces your risk of obesity, depression, arthritis, diabetes, colorectal cancer. You know, when you stand back... So why are we not all prescribed it at 45? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> the more we think about it and talk about it, the more I'm being asked that question because we're saying, well, hold on a minute. Actually, you know, if it improves our quality of life, and if you take, for example, something like uh, I don't know, osteoporosis. So yes, there's there's a risk of death after, after an osteoporotic hip fracture, but it, it can cause chronic pain. It can lead to loss of mobility. It can lead to loss of dependence. And you know, life is quality of life, not just quantity of life. And when I sort of talk to women about the risks and benefits, you think, well, on the one hand, you got a very small risk of breast cancer and if you do get breast cancer 90% of women with breast cancer are cured because they have surgery and chemotherapy etc versus Alzheimer's for which there is no cure massive reduction in risk cardiovascular disease kills far more women than breast cancer massive reduction in risk uh, all the other things that I've already talked about you think well actually what are we doing? <laughs> you know, why are we even thinking about women's risk of breast cancer when actually I'm far more concerned about their future bone health and brain health and heart health? But it's there must be something not simple, but something basic here that the anti-inflammatory properties of estrogen protect you against all of those things that you've mentioned. There must be some, I'm not saying that it's just straightforward, but there must be something fundamental in that. Absolutely. So um, again, I, I don't think that anybody knows exact mechanisms, but we do know that estrogen is very beneficial. We know that there are receptors for estrogen all over the body, including on many of our immune cells, our T cells, our B cells, our natural killer cells. And we know that estrogen has diverse anti-inflammatory effects throughout the body. And HRT, therefore, by giving back these body identical hormones, so the hormones that your ovaries used to make, we're just replacing them back to the female range. They're much safer than the older fashioned HRT. We give estrogen now in a patch or gel, so it's delivered across the skin, so it bypasses the liver, so there's no increased risk of blood clots. So women who can't, for example, take the pill because they suffer from migraines or they've had a blood clot in the past or there's a family history, you can give them transdermal estrogen patch or gel very safely. The progesterone we give nowadays is the progesterone or possibly the marina coil, which is another way of giving progesterone to women, very, very, very low stroke, non-existent risk of breast cancer. Um, and, you know, the benefit is that you're getting all these long-term health benefits. Um, it's, you know, it's a no-brainer, I think. So if we have people listening who think, okay, this sounds like something that I'm interested in exploring, either mm. because something in the symptoms you've described connects with their long COVID symptoms or, or their age group. What would be your advice in terms of taking this to their primary care um, provider, given that uh, we're still hearing that the long COVID clinics uh, don't have menopause specialists, are not necessarily even asking about uh, periods or uh, hormonal symptoms? How do we get people moving forwards? 
I think um, the best thing to do probably in the first instance, I mean, if you've got a supportive GP who's interested, then theoretically you should be able to speak to them. And as I say, you've got nothing really to lose by trying HRT. And if you don't want to continue it, then fine, stop it. Although I would argue that actually you're still going to get the long-term health benefits, even if it doesn't help your COVID symptoms. If um, you are worried about going to see your GP, then you that there's the Balance website. So Louise Newton has set up this Balance website and she's also got the Balance app. And I'm sure many menopausal listeners uh, listening in, they will probably already be familiar with that. Uh, and on the app or on the website, there's a symptom questionnaire where basically you just you can print it off uh, or you can do it on the app and it prints off a health report and you can take that with you to your GP and you can say, look, I tick all these boxes. These are symptoms that are very consistent with the menopause. I don't know whether it's menopause or whether it's long COVID or whether it's a bit of both, but I'm really keen to try HRT. There's lots of other reasons to try HRT and there's no reason not to try HRT. And then your GP should uh, be perfectly confident and capable of prescribing HRT for you. I think if you still hit a brick wall, which is not unheard of, um, then you need to see a different doctor. Hopefully there'll be another GP in the practice. So you might need to be pushy. You might need to shop around. Unfortunately, if you can't find a GP that's going to listen to you, then at the moment, your only options, or if you're at the long COVID clinic, that's also an option. But ultimately, if you're struggling, then then unfortunately, you're, you're going to have to see someone in the private sector because there aren't enough menopause doctors and menopause clinics in the NHS. They're just not there. Um, so I, I think most people should be able to get the treatment through their through their GP. And they are treatments, even the bioidentical hormones that you've described are treatments that are available on the NHS and by the NHS. I know that there previously used to be some tension over certain prescribing. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, body identical hormones, there's a slight difference between body identical and bioidentical, which is very confusing. But basically, body identical hormones are, are those that we prescribe on the NHS and they're sort of estradiol, 17 beta estradiol, which is what our ovaries make and progesterone um, and testosterone possibly um, that you can get on the NHS as opposed to bioidentical hormones, which are something that's only available in the private sector. And they are um, they are not evidence-based, not a good form of HRT. So, um, but on the NHS and most private medical specialists, uh, and again, there's lots of information about this on the Balance website. If people want to do some reading, there's information leaflets about types of HRT. There's videos, there's podcasts. It's a, it's a, a really excellent resource to look at. Um, but yes, uh, certainly the estrogen, the patches, the gels, the eutrogesta, marina these are all available on the NHS. There's nothing fancy about them. The only thing that you might um, have to Difficulty with uh, is testosterone because lots of GPs won't be familiar with testosterone prescribing. They won't have been taught about it. And testosterone is not licensed for women other than for the treatment of low libido in this country. And GPs may not be happy prescribing something that's off license if they're not familiar with it and they don't know how to prescribe it. But ultimately, I know that not all women can get hold of testosterone from their GP and they might need to source that. Separately. That may change this year as awareness is increasing. Uh, at the moment, the, the testosterone products that we prescribe, uh, that I prescribe both NHS and privately, are products that are designed for men. There are no products designed for women that are available uh, in this country. I mean, it's crazy that women aren't allowed to have testosterone um, and, and aren't being prescribed testosterone. And we prescribe off license often as doctors. So it's not really an argument the G, for, you know, to, to say, for a GP to turn and say, oh, but it's off license, it's not really good enough. You know, when we prescribe, I don't know, a meprazole to babies uh, or when we prescribe gabapentin for nerve pain, we're prescribing off license. We do do that. There's no law that says you can't prescribe off license. And until 
the evidence is available and the data is available, then um, at the moment we're just going really on anecdotal and observational findings and studies that are saying that, look, that this is something we've observed and this is something that women really seem to be benefiting from and it's really worthwhile, you know, learning about it. You know, as a GP, and, you know, I'm a GP as well, and as a GP, you can't know everything about everything, obviously. You can't know about heart failure and blood pressure and orthopedic problems. And, you know, there's a lot to cover, you know, when you're a generalist. But within a practice, if it's a big practice, there's often different GPs that have different interests. So it's always important when you book an appointment to say, is there a GP with a special interest in the menopause or women's health and ask specifically to see that one? And I think as a GP, it's very important to be aware of where your strengths lie and where your weaknesses lie. And it's okay not to know something or not to know something well, as long as you point the patient in the direction of somebody who can help them um, and if that's you know a colleague or whether it's referring to secondary care whatever it takes but it's not good enough given that the menopause affects 51 percent of the population directly and the entire population indirectly because we all have husbands and children and families then you know I would say if you're going to learn to do one thing well in primary care surely the menopause has got to be up there and as I say it's so rewarding I mean you know the reason I, I got into menopause and HRT prescribing was because it was so rewarding and you know I think about a lot of the things I do and you know, my other interest is in allergy and asthma and yeah you did your master's in allergy and asthma I was going to ask you about about whether you've brought that into your long COVID treatment when you've been dealing with your your patients in your GP practice so not specifically my treatment of long COVID. I think that's probably what sparked my interest in long COVID because having an awareness about immunology and allergy and knowing, for example, that people with long COVID are more likely to have asthma or hay fever or eczema. And there's a link uh, with how the immune system is reacting in patients with long COVID. It might be similar to how patients are who have allergic immune reactions. So that's probably what sparked my interest in it. Um, and I've sort of certainly you know done read quite a lot about the different theories about what might be going on that's causing long COVID. But no, it doesn't affect what I prescribe and how I prescribe. Are you at all worried that as we all get COVID, that it's doing something to younger women for future problems down the road? Like like I explained, my daughter has quite heavy periods and a lot of her friends do after having had COVID. It's worrying to think that maybe down the road that we're going to have some issues with all these young women who got COVID and their and their reproductive health? It is worrying. I, I, I'm not a paediatrician, so I, I don't know how COVID is affecting children so much. Um, but certainly I listened to your podcast recently that you did with the immunologist, was it um, uh, Anthony Leonardi, is that right? Yeah. And I was very interested to hear his thoughts about, um, you know, successive hits on the immune system and what COVID might be doing to our immune cells and this prospect potentially in five years of a massive widespread disability and we know that you know lots of viruses are implicated in different cancers say for example human papilloma virus in cervical cancer and esophageal cancer and you know the hepatitis viruses in liver cancer and we just don't know yet we don't know with covid whether there's going to be any long-term issues in terms of cancer and uh, long-term health and so yes it is a frightening and I think it's, you know, particularly at the moment, given that we're all going back to normal and people are being encouraged to go back, you know, to get back out there and to behave normally and not to wear face masks. And um, yeah, it is, a, it is a frightening prospect. There is a definite link between long COVID and changes to our menstrual cycle. Like both yeah, you and I... something you and I have spoken about from 
like since we started talking. I think it's something specific to women that just makes it that much worse for us and maybe makes us more vulnerable to getting long COVID in the first place. Our hormones play quite a significant role in all autoimmune issues. Yeah, hopefully with the, all of the long COVID research, we actually begin to get a little bit more of a grasp on, on that, on the way that the hormones affect our immune system and the way our, our immune system affects our, our hormones. Because I hope that we are starting to get a little more, a little deeper into the research of, of that. I think every specialty adds a nuance to the field of long COVID. So, you know, you have all these different specialties that are chipping away at different symptoms and trying to look for causes for different symptoms. And the perimenopausal women seem to be a significant cohort within this group. And so it does merit investigation and it's just that we need someone to then pull all these strands together yeah to try and find out what is actually causing all these issues it could be one thing it could be i think it's probably a number of things i agree but that's the difficulty because medicine is so segmented so everyone has their specialty and no one looks at the person as a whole no which is why you still need us patient advocates I'm not saying specifically you and me I'm talking about all of us because we are the people that bring it together and bring it together in the real form that it is like you can't remove your cardiac symptoms from your or hormonal symptoms or you can't separate them out and look at them the way that they look at them so I think it, it's going to be sort of reliant on that patient research I'm not criticizing doctors for doing this, but you get this understanding very quickly that when you see a cardiologist or when you see a respiratory physician, they're only interested in looking at that part of you yeah, and trying to fix that part of you. And then once they've kind of done all they can, then they dismiss you. Yeah, they've done their job. So, <laughs> so then you're left maybe with some working parts, but still as a whole, you're not functional. You're not fully functional. I found this with my mum. My mum has an autoimmune issue and her rheumatologist has kind of reached the end of what he thinks he can do for her and has now kind of given up and is now, you know, thanks very much. So her next appointment's now in a year and the last visit, because I go with her, was just about controlling her pain rather than trying to help her actually reduce whatever inflammation that she has. But that is exactly the same as all of us with on COVID, isn't it? It is simply about managing your pain, managing your, just management, managing your energy levels, managing your expectations. And then and I don't even know if there is any follow-up from, from these clinics or from the people that we see. You're just given a few tools and told to go out and get on with that. And the sad fact is that it is likely that there are just going to be millions and millions of more people in that same situation. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.